Okay, so we'll get started. Sorry for the delay. We had a little bit of a tough transition. The class before us was taking an, an exam, so that's the time when my computer needed more time to get set up. Um, we've been talking, last time we talked about uh, simple harmonic motion and periodic motion. We'll come back to that when we talk about waves and sound, which is chapter 15 and 16. Uh, right now we're going to talk about fluid mechanics. I'm not sure why your book puts fluid mechanics between harmonic motion and waves. I would have put them together, but just for the sake of simplicity, I'm following the order in the book. So this week we're doing fluid mechanics. Uh, today we do what's called fluid statics or hydrostatics. Uh, Wednesday we're going to do hydrodynamics. So as the name implies, today is fluid that's stationary. Wednesday will be fluid that's moving. And we'll look to understand the properties of the fluid. Um, a couple of the important properties are density and pressure. So we'll introduce those today. Um, we'll come up with a couple equations that describe how objects behave when they're submersed in fluid. Uh, particularly, we'll look at buoyancy, which is the tendency of an object to float. So we'll describe mathematically what that requires. And then on Wednesday, we'll talk about moving fluid and how fluid moving over an airplane wing can make the airplane fly, how you can kick a soccer ball and have a curve, how you can um, do a lot of interesting things using these expressions. Okay, so the two parameters of a fluid that we need to introduce in order to uh, distinguish fluids from solids are density and pressure. Okay, so when we deal with solid objects and we want to describe their motion, some of the really important parameters are the mass of the object you're considering and the forces acting on it. Right? Most of the problems we've done have involved having to know those things in order to calculate what's going on. Well, a fluid isn't a discrete object the way a baseball is. So you can't just say the fluid has a certain mass. Right? It depends on how much of the fluid you have. So we tend not to talk about the mass of a fluid, but we talk about the mass per unit volume, how much mass a little chunk of fluid would have. And that's called the density. Okay, so density is mass per unit volume. We pretty much use that when we do problems with fluids. Everywhere we would have used mass if we were doing similar problems with solid objects. So it's a very important parameter. And then pressure, I've written it as the internal energy per unit volume. And I'll describe why I wrote it that way in a moment. Um, but it's also the force per unit area that acts on something. And so if you have a little volume of fluid, it's presumably sitting inside of a bigger volume of fluid. Okay, and by fluid, you may think of things like uh, liquids, water. Um, so there's water in this room, that's a fluid. There's another fluid that occupies this room, air. Yeah. So gases are fluids too. So gases and liquids are fluids. Um, so typically if we have a little volume of fluid, um, it's being pushed on by all the fluid around it. And how hard it's being pushed depends on a couple things. It depends on how big that volume is. The bigger it is, the more fluid around it is pushing on it, so the greater the, the force. Um, so the amount of force per unit area we call the pressure. So density is kind of like mass. Pressure is kind of like force when we set up equations and try to solve for how fluids should move around. Okay, so density is just 
the mass of an object divided by its volume. That's true whether it's a solid object or a fluid. Um, if it's a fluid, oftentimes we don't have a discrete amount of the stuff. So you can't just say, like, uh, the density of this computer monitor, measure its mass, measure its volume. Um, if we wanted to say the density of this air, right, we have to define a volume and then determine how much mass would be contained inside of it. Typically, it sort of works the other way. For various fluids, you can look up in tables the density and use that to figure out how much a given volume would, how much mass a given volume would have. So density is mass per unit volume. Pressure can be thought of not only as force per area, but can also be thought of as the potential energy per unit volume. It's a form of energy per unit volume. And on Wednesday, it'll be really clear why that's a useful way to think of pressure. Uh, for today, I can motivate that by having you imagine a cylinder filled with gas. So this might be a bike pump. And there's a piston that you can compress the gas with. So you've got a bike pump. You're pushing down on it. As you do, you're applying a force, and the piston is moving. So what are you doing? What are you exerting? A force acting in the direction of a displacement means there's work. There's work. Okay? So you're doing work. Work is you're transferring energy. That's what work means. So you're transferring energy. Where does it go? Have you increased the kinetic energy of the gas? Is the gas zipping about? Is it moving? Gina? If you compress the bike pump, have you added kinetic energy to the system? Okay, how so? What's moving? Okay, so the particles themselves may be moving. And we'll see a little demonstration in a minute that shows that. But the, the whole thing isn't, doesn't have some center of mass motion. Okay, so our traditional, uh, our traditional description of kinetic energy where the center of mass of an object is moving, this doesn't have any translational kinetic energy. So your, the work you do might go into moving the individual particles with a greater velocity, but it doesn't cause the whole thing to have some motion of its center of mass, nor does it cause the whole thing to go up and increase its potential energy. So there's some kinetic energy due to the particles just moving around in sort of random directions, but not causing the whole thing to, to move off. So that's some energy that's not accounted for when we calculate 1 half mv squared of the center of mass. It's kinetic energy, but it's not included in that equation. So we'll call that actually the energy stored in the gas, it's stored in the motion of the molecule. So we'll call it a potential energy. Pressure is the amount of potential energy per unit volume. Okay, so the volume of this gas, or at least the volume um, that I compress it, is how far I compress it times the area of this piston. We'll call that A delta x. And now, The energy stored there is the work divided by the displacement. That's the force. So I can say the energy per unit volume has to equal the force per unit area. So 
two different definitions for pressure. Today we'll concentrate on the force per unit area definition. On Wednesday we'll talk about more about the energy per unit volume way of thinking about that. Okay, so before going on, I said the density is the quantity you could look up. I also said that there's two fluids that we commonly deal with, air and water. So here are their approximate values. Air has a density of about one kilogram per meter cubed and water about 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed. So you'll use those values a lot when you're doing, doing problems that require numerical values. It's easy to confuse. I mean, you have two values. It's easy to mix them up. Just You know air is less dense than water. That's why the atmosphere is above the ocean. Right? So the smaller one is that of air. So just as a really quick calculation, how much does the air in this room weigh? Let's calculate the weight of the air in the room. It's equal to the mass of the air times g. The mass of the air is the density of the air times volume times g. We have to estimate the volume of the room. Maybe three meters high by call it ten meters long and ten meters wide. So that's one three hundred cubic meters. So we have one kilogram per meter cubed times about three hundred cubic meters times, yeah, 9.8 meters per second squared. So the meters cubes cancel out. The air has a mass of about 300 kilograms. And therefore, that's a weight of about 3 kilonewtons. Okay, a mass of 300 kilograms may be more meaningful. It weighs about twice that. Well, weighs about, what, four times that of an average male? Okay, so air has considerable mass, and there are instances where that needs to be considered. Well, so air is a mix, it's a gaseous mixture of a various number of elements. Right, it has nitrogen predominantly, it has oxygen, carbon dioxide, argon. So it's a, it's a mix of those elements, and it's that mix that has a density of one kilogram per meter cubed. Uh, what would the density of helium be relative to one kilogram per meter cubed? Would it be greater or less? Less, right? So that's why a helium balloon floats. It's less dense. Um, some other gases, the further down on the periodic table the element is, the more dense its gas is going to be as a general rule. Something like a xenon gas, if you filled a balloon with it, it would fall like a rock. Okay, it would be much, much heavier than the, the air around it. Okay, so that's a little bit about density, right? The other property is pressure that we need to understand. So a couple different things to note about pressure. So I mentioned it's a force per unit area. So more specifically, it's the normal force that acts on an element of fluid. Force acting from the surrounding, um, the surrounding material per unit area. It's a scalar. Okay, so force 
is a vector, right? It has a direction. Pressure does not. So that may seem counterintuitive, but if you think about it, consider, let's consider a tank of water. It's a little easier to draw than air, I guess. Uh, it has a boundary so we can draw it. You consider like maybe a balloon or something sitting underneath the water. Um, all this water that sits on top of it has weight and is pulling down, or is pushing down due to gravity. Right, so that exerts a normal force pointing down. If this little volume is in equilibrium, so imagine that's a water balloon sitting underwater. Well, it's filled with water, it's surrounded by water, so it's just going to sort of, it's not necessarily heavier, it's not going to sink, it's not going to float. So it's just going to sit there. So there must be a force pushing up with equal magnitude, and that's the pressure down below it. And likewise, don't expect it to get pancaked. So there must be pressure pushing in from the sides. Okay, and they have to balance as well. So there's a normal force from the sides, and all these forces have the same magnitude. Therefore, the amount of pressure, the amount of force per unit area we call the pressure. And it's exerted in every direction within the fluid, which is why it's not a vector. There's a couple different ways to describe pressure. It can be given as an absolute value. And what I mean by that is you can measure how much pressure there is relative to empty space. Right, so if there's around us, there's atmosphere, right, there's gas. And that gas has some pressure, atmospheric pressure. So if we want to describe how much pressure there is, say, in a balloon, we can Describe that as an absolute quantity, how much force per unit area. Or we can compare it to the pressure surrounding it. So we can compare it to the atmospheric pressure. That's called gauge pressure. We'll see examples of both of these. This one is sometimes useful because it's easier to measure. It's easier to compare the pressure between two points than it is to measure the absolute pressure at a given point. So we'll see examples of how these differ and why it's important to keep track of the two um, in a minute. But the last thing I want to mention is the units. The units, you can see from being force per unit area that they should be newtons per meter squared. So we have a name for that. It's called a Pascal. Does anyone know what atmospheric pressure is in Pascals? So atmospheric pressure, mm, that's different units. 760 is millimeters of mercury. We'll see why, where that unit comes from, because that doesn't seem to have the same dimension. Uh, 101, yeah, 101.3 kilopascals is uh, the way I usually remember it. So 1.013 times 10 to the fifth. Pascals. Okay, so let's start with uh, a simple diagram and then we'll work our way up to 
sort of an example problem where we have stuff we don't know. Uh, let's consider this fluid. Let's say this is water in a beaker or something. We've got this little element of area, A on top, and some infinitesimal height, dy. Then we can consider the force acting on this as coming from the work done by the weight of the water above it when it moves this element down by an amount dy. So the energy of the, the potential energy of the water sitting above this um, well, let me write it, I've written it this way. The energy of the fluid in this volume is The volume is A dy, yes. And the potential energy stored is the density times that volume, that's the mass of that fluid, times G, that's its weight, and then Y is how far it's lifted up off the ground. Right? So that's the um, gravitational potential energy stored there. So if it's got that amount of energy in it, and it's pushing down on this area A underneath it, if it were to move to compress the fluid by an amount dy, the work it would do would be F dy, and that's equal to change in potential energy. So we can say the force is minus the change in potential energy with respect to position. And when we differentiate this with respect to y, we get rho dv times g. And for dv, I've plugged in ADY. So if pressure is force per unit area, divide both sides by area. And I've got rho GY with a negative sign. And that will tell me the pressure in the fluid as a function of the height compared to the pressure down here, where I called my height equal to zero. So what this is saying is as I go higher and higher in the fluid, the pressure gets more and more negative. So as y gets higher, the pressure gets more and more negative. So oftentimes, the way we describe this is compared to the surface, as you go down further and further, the pressure gets greater and greater. Same meaning. And that we call Pascal's law. And we can write it in terms of the pressure relative to the pressure at the surface. So if P naught is the pressure of the fluid at the surface, and H is the distance below the surface, so how deep you are in the fluid, then the pressure down here is equal to whatever pressure there was at the surface plus the additional pressure from all this fluid sitting above it. And that additional pressure is rho GH. So this term right here, this additional pressure from this fluid is what we call the gauge pressure. 
So the pressure at the surface would be atmospheric pressure if this is an open, open container. And so the total pressure is atmospheric pressure plus whatever additional pressure there is due to the, the fluid here. And if we want to just consider the additional pressure, we call that the gauge pressure. Okay, so Peter mentioned that the um, pre atmospheric pressure is 760 millimeters, which is kind of odd because our units of pressure, pascals, is a force per unit area. That does not have dimensions of length. It does not have units of millimeters. So where does that number, 760 millimeters, come from? We can understand that using Pascal's law and the device that's used to measure atmospheric pressure, which is called the barometer. So a basic barometer looks like this. You have a container of fluid that's open to the atmosphere. This is usually a liquid that's open to the atmosphere. And as a result, the pressure pushing down on the surface of this fluid is atmospheric pressure. And then there will be a column of the fluid that's in a tube. Basically, you fill the tube with fluid, you turn it upside down, it's completely full of fluid. And what happens is the fluid would want to flow out like that, but it can't because there's atmospheric pressure pushing back on it. Now, if you were to cut a hole in the top here, there would also be atmospheric pressure pushing there, and it would flow. But if the top is sealed, air can't get in here to allow this to flow down. So you have what's called a vacuum up here. There's nothing there, basically. So the pressure up here is zero. So there's a pressure difference from here to here. And as a result, because there's no air pressure pushing up here, the pressure of this column of water pushing down has to equal the pressure of the atmosphere pushing down over here. So we can use Pascal's law to find how high the column of water is in terms of the atmospheric pressure. Okay, so to start with, we fill the tube completely up. We have atmospheric pressure pushing down. And then we say that the pressure at this point inside of the barometer has to be the same as the atmospheric pressure. It's only a function of the height in the fluid. And this point is at the same height as that. And so I'll call that point 0.2. The pressure at point 0.2 is equal to the pressure at the top of the fluid. What is the pressure at the top of this column? It's 0. So I'll call that uh, P1, which is equal to 0. And I'll write this in a more general form. P1 plus the additional pressure from all the fluid that's above it. And that term looks like rho GH, okay, where this column is a height H. I'm letting this go to 0 
I can say that the pressure 2, which has equal atmospheric pressure, equals rho gh. So this is an instrument that's used to measure atmospheric pressure. And quite simply, what you find is that atmospheric pressure is pretty much determined by the atmosphere. Right? That's, that's essentially a constant in this experiment. When you set up your barometer, if the tube starts off higher than this height, what will happen is the water will start to flow out until the remaining height of water is such that its pressure, rho gh, equals atmospheric. And when you have that, you can read off on a scale the height of the water. And knowing the density of water, you can determine the atmospheric pressure. Or you can just, if you only care about relative values, you could just quote the height. Okay, So that's 760 millimeters is the height of a column of fluid that's supported by atmospheric pressure. Let's plug in some numbers and see if that makes sense. So let's consider water. Water has a density of 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed. Atmospheric pressure is, I'll call it 10 to the fifth pascals. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to call G 10 meters per second squared. It's an estimate. I'm going to get an estimate for the height of a column of water that can be supported by atmospheric pressure. OK, so I have 10 to the 3 times 10 to the 1. That's 10 to the 4. So 10 to the 5 over 10 to the 4 is 10 to the 1. So that's 10. I have uh, meters divided by this is meters squared. Kilograms per meter squared per second squared. A pascal is a force per unit area. So kilograms, meters per second squared divided by area. So dividing that by kilograms, meters squared per second squared. Second squareds cancel. The kilograms cancel. These meters cancel. 10 meters. Okay. So to build a barometer out of water, you need a column that's 10 meters high three stories high. Okay, so that 760 millimeters that you hear sometimes is the atmospheric pressure. Is the height of a column of fluid in a barometer. It's just not water. That's not the fluid. It's a fluid that's much more dense. Okay, one of the most, one of the... Pascal uh, is a Newton per meter squared. So I've written it newtons in terms of kilograms, meters, and seconds. Okay, so barometers out of water are not very useful for measuring atmospheric pressure. Um, mercury is used. So 760 millimeters of mercury can be supported by atmospheric pressure. So mercury is like 13 times heavier than water, 13 times more dense than water. So it's got a much larger value for rho, so it can have a much smaller value for H. Much more manageable value. So that's one type of barometer. Um, you can also use a barometer to measure not the atmospheric pressure, but the pressure inside of some closed 
some closed chamber. So let's say you've got some chamber over here. Maybe you're doing some experiment where you need gas at a certain pressure, um, and you want to measure that pressure inside the chamber. You've pumped, pumped out most of the gas. You want to measure the remaining pressure. You can set up a barometer that compares the pressure inside here to atmospheric. So there's a barometer. Here, if the pressure in the chamber is the same as atmospheric pressure, what do you expect the height of the fluid levels would be on the two sides? They'd be the same. They'd be the same. Now what happens if atmospheric pressure is greater than that in here? Yeah, there's a stronger force pushing down here than there is here. So this goes down, this goes up, until the additional pressure from the additional fluid, the additional height of fluid over here, when added to the pressure in here, equals the pressure, pressure pushing down here. Okay, so let's do an example. If the water is higher by 10 centimeters on the end opening to the chamber, so if this height is greater than that, what is the gauge pressure in the chamber and what is the atmospheric, uh, what is the absolute pressure? Okay, so first if the fluid here is higher and the fluid's water, is the pressure here greater than or less than atmospheric pressure? It's less than, it's kind of sucked some of the fluid up, you can think about it like that. So let's set this up, we'll start with the drawing. And I know the difference in height is 10 centimeters, but for now I'll just call it H. This fluid is water, so I know its density. It's 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed. I'm trying to find the pressure, which I'll call P sub A, in this chamber. And I know the atmospheric pressure out here, which I'll call P atmosphere is 101.3 kilopascals. So that value, that's an average value. It's called STP, standard temperature. That's the standard pressure. It can fluctuate based on the weather, based on your height. Um, so that's just an average value. OK, so we're going to use Pascal's law. We have stationary fluid. We have a height difference and a pressure difference that we want to relate. So that means use Pascal's law. Okay, So consider two points. And the point that's further down is this one. So the pressure further down in the fluid is equal to the pressure at the surface. So if you like, the pressure here is going to be the same as the pressure here. And clearly, this point is below that point. So the pressure here is equal to the pressure at the surface, which is what I'm going after plus the additional pressure from the fluid sitting on top of it, which looks like rho GH. Okay, so that's just Pascal's law. I've plugged in the appropriate values. And now we can solve for the various things. So the first question is, what is the gauge pressure? Gauge pressure is the difference between the atmospheric and inside the chamber. Okay, that's this. So the gauge pressure is the atmospheric pressure minus pressure in the chamber. 
and evaluate that. If I've done everything in SI units, my units of pressure are going to be pascals. So my gauge pressure is 980 pascals. Because I said the pressure in the chamber is less than that on the outside, I should be a little more careful about how I write this. The gauge pressure is the pressure on the, at point A relative to the atmospheric pressure. So it's going to be minus 980 pascals. 980 pascals lower than atmospheric pressure. The absolute pressure is PA. So I can say the absolute pressure is P atmosphere minus rho GH. So that's whatever 101.3 kilopascals minus 980 pascals is. So that's uh, So when you have fluid that's not moving, and you want to talk about pressures in that fluid, we do it using Pascal's law. And it's just a matter of recognizing uh, the two different points, the pressure at the point we want, figuring out which term that is, the pressure at the surface, which term that is, and then recognizing that the difference is the, uh, the gauge pressure. And the gauge pressure plus that at the surface is the total pressure. That's one of the two concepts that we're dealing with today regarding fluids. The other is buoyancy. Buoyancy is the tendency of something to float when put in a fluid. Um, we'll consider objects that don't float, but because they're immersed in a fluid, uh, they can be lifted up more easily than if they weren't. So you know that like lifting up something that's really heavy that's in water is easier than lifting it when it's when it's not. Um, that's because there's what we call a buoyant force, which is attempting to lift the object up when it's submersed. Okay, so in order to understand that, um, we need to understand a couple things about how the molecules of the gas or the, the liquid are moving around and how they affect the objects that are submerged in them. Um, the basic idea is that when an object is submersed, Due to Pascal's law, the pressure pushing on the bottom of that object must be greater than the pressure at the top. Okay, so here's, let's say, a bathtub, and here's a, here's a person. 
who sinks. Oops. That might be me. I don't float. So there's pressure pushing down on them, or there's a force pushing down at the top of the person, and there's a force pushing up at the bottom. And at the top, that force is equal to the area times its pressure times area. And the pressure is atmospheric pressure, that's the surface, plus rho g times the height of the top of the object. So however far below the surface the top of the person is determines how hard the water pushing down on them is there. But at the bottom, the bottom of the object is further below the surface. And therefore, the pressure pushing back is greater. difference between these two forces produces a net force pushing up. That we call the buoyant force. Now, if that difference, if that buoyant force is as strong as the weight of the person pushing down, they will float. Right? If it's not, they will sink. We can calculate that difference so the difference in the force so f bottom minus f top that's going to be the magnitude of the buoyant force from our expressions the difference comes from the difference in height times the area right so when i subtract these two quantities the atmospheric pressure term times A cancels out. And then I have rho g h top minus rho g h bottom. I'll just call it rho g delta h. So this is the difference in pressure from the top to the bottom. And this is the area of the person in which that pressure is acting. So that area is A, their height, their difference in depth is delta H. Then A delta H is just the volume that they occupy. Whatever volume they occupy, that's how much fluid they displace. So we say that the net force acting on them due to the fluid is pointing up and is equal to rho g times the volume of the fluid displaced. So the density of the fluid times the volume of the displaced fluid is what? What's density times the volume? The mass. That's the mass of the displaced fluid times g. So the buoyant force is equal to the weight of the displaced fluid. And a way of 
sort of visualizing that is to consider this analogy. Um, Consider a couple buckets attached to ropes to go over a pulley. And then you've got some fluid. If you want to lower one bucket into the fluid, it's got to displace some of the fluid right, to make room for the bucket. When it displaces it, the displaced fluid is going to flow up here to the surface. It has to go up. The amount of fluid that gets displaced is the volume of the bucket. So you can think of it as having another bucket over here filled with water or fluid that's going up when this bucket goes down. Does that make sense? If you do that, you don't need to think about the fluid at all, you can just say, here's a bucket that's empty. Here's a bucket that's filled with fluid. Because this fluid has some mass that pulls down in this bucket, there's going to be some tension in this rope. That tension is going to pull up on this bucket. That's like the buoyant force. Try to put something into the fluid, the buoyant force pushes back with a magnitude that equals the weight of the displaced fluid. And that's what happens in this example as well. You try to pull this bucket down, tension pulls back with a force equal to the weight of the other bucket. OK, so um, let's see a little demonstration here, a virtual demonstration. that demonstrates sort of what's going on on a microscopic level, a way that we couldn't actually see in a physical demonstration. So here's an empty chamber. Here's another, here's a balloon that's inside of it. It's a rigid wall, so it's a fixed volume uh, container. We're gonna pump the handle. That's gonna inject some fluid into here, some air. And we can follow where the fluid molecules go and sort of understand what's gonna happen. So all these little bubbles represent fluid molecules. They all have mass and weight, so they tend to settle down at the bottom of the container. They get pulled down, but they collide with each other, and they collide in essentially inelastic or elastic collisions. So they bounce around, and so occasionally they'll get kicked. And whenever they get kicked, they have a chance of bouncing up towards the top. So there can be some fluid up here at the top, but it tries to settle down here. Um, it's only because of all the the rustling and bouncing around that some of it ends up at the top. So what you can see is that down here at the bottom, the fluid is more dense. There's more molecules per unit volume than at the top. So that's Pascal's law. We can also understand buoyancy a little bit. Our, our object over here is not just sitting here. Well, say it's not just sitting here on the ground. It kind of is. Uh, it should be. Let me select the rigid hollow sphere. Try this again. Okay, in the absence of gas, that's just going to fall down. You can see it's bouncy. 
slide. It's essentially just going to fall down and eventually settle at the bottom of the container there. And now what happens is all these molecules, every time they hit it, they give it a little kick. And right now they're all hitting it from the right side, so it's going to push it to the left. Um, but now, as the molecules have settled down here on the bottom, the gas molecules, there's more of them below the sphere than there are above. So there's more molecules kicking it up than there are kicking it down. And that's what causes it to rise up. That, in essence, is the buoyant force, sort of on a microscopic level. For what it's worth, you can have some fun injecting different gases. Now we have something more like air, where there's a mixture of uh, elements. You can heat it, do all sorts of fun things. If you're interested in uh, playing around with this little applet, the uh, URL is on the lecture slides. So conceptually, that's what's going on when an object explodes. Okay, so the equation that we'll use to describe this is here. The buoyant force, which we call F sub B, has a magnitude that's equal to the weight of the displaced fluid. So that's the mass of the displaced fluid times G. The mass of the displaced fluid depends on its density and how much of the volume gets displaced. Um, and it's always, so if gravity's pointing down, the buoyant force will point up. So that's what this minus g hat means. Uh, what's really kind of interesting is that um, if you put, say, a helium balloon in a car, right, what do you expect it will do when you let go of it? It'll float, it'll go up, it'll sit at the ceiling, right? And then you start your car, you accelerate, right? And when you accelerate, what happens to your body? What do you feel? You get pushed back, right? What happens to the balloon? It doesn't stay put, it moves. So intuitively, you might think it gets pushed back as well, right? But then again, intuitively, you think it would fall down. It goes up. It al it's always going the opposite direction. What happens is when you hit the gas, all the air rushes to the back, and the pressure increases in the back of the car, pushes the balloon forward. When you go around a turn, let's say you turn left, right, and you're pushed to the right, the balloon will be pushed to the left. So try it out. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. It's really counterintuitive. Uh, if you, I guess, safety disclaimer, try it on light rail first. That way you don't have a balloon flying in your face when you go around a curve. Okay, so let's see, what's the minimum volume of helium necessary to carry a 100 kilogram person? So this might be important if you're designing a blimp and you wanna know how big a blimp can you need to make. Well, a blimp is a balloon. Uh, it's filled with helium, which is less dense than air. And as a result, the weight of the helium in the balloon, and helium does have mass, so it will have weight and will be attracted towards the earth, but it will be less than the weight of the fluid it displaces. So the buoyant force pushing up will be greater than the mass of the helium pulling it, being pulled down. So this will have a tendency to float up. If you add a 100 kilogram person to this, then you can make the, um, and you make the size of the balloon appropriate, you can get the total weight of the person and the helium equaling the buoyant force pushing up. And that's when the system will float. 
let's calculate how big of a helium balloon we need to do this. So we have an object that's floating. So we expect that we're going to use the equation for the buoyant force. I'll write that down first. Its magnitude is rho volume displaced of the fluid times g. And I can draw a free body diagram since I'm dealing with forces. Here's my blimp with my person in it. I have a 100 kilogram person weight of the 100 kilogram person pulling down. And I'm going to call that the mass of the person times g. Later on, I'll fill in the value of 100 kilograms for that. I'm also going to have the weight of the helium pulling down. We'll call that the mass of the helium times g. Okay, So the mass of the helium is equal to the density of helium times the volume of the blimp. And then I'll have the buoyant force pointing up, because this is not just helium balloon in a vacuum. It's in air. So it has to displace some air. There will be a buoyant force. It has a magnitude of rho Vg. This density is the density of what? Air. Yes. It's not the density of the helium. It's the density of the gas that gets displaced, which is the air the volume of the blimp and g. Okay, so those are the forces that act on this. I need them all to balance in order for this thing to be able to float. So I need the sum of the forces in y, which is mass times acceleration in y. I want that to be zero in equilibrium. Okay, so let me write that out. that to equal 0. I can see the g's cancel. I can group terms that have the volume of the blimp in them, since that's what I want to solve for. And I can solve for it.
Okay, so let me try to get a numerical answer here since I have a number for the mass of the person. That's 100 kilograms. What's the density of air? I have one kilogram per meter cubed. What about the density of helium? We haven't been given that. Is there any way we could estimate it? Do we know how much a, a helium atom weighs compared to a typical atom in air? Yeah, you roughly read it off the periodic table. Air is mostly made of nitrogen. Helium is uh, atomic number, I guess there's four uh, atomic nuclei in it. Nitrogen has, let's say 14. I'm not a chemist. So we could approximate it. Uh, I happen to know the value. So let's say we look this up. Your book has a table of the density of common fluids. And this is about 0.82. So 100 kilograms divided by 0.82. gives us about 140 meters cubed. So we can do a reality check. Um, earlier we said this room is about 300 meters cubed. So 140 meters cubed is about half the size of this room. Does that seem approximately the size of a helium blimp that you might expect to see? More or less. Right, it's not terribly far off. This is only enough to lift a single person. In reality, there's the weight of the, the frame, there's the weight of additional people. So uh, you'd expect an actual blimp would be bigger than that. Any questions? Peter. Yeah, so this is a really common mistake people make is when they're plugging in values for the buoyant force. Um, because we, we're dealing with helium here, it's tempting to plug in the density of helium. The problem is, what we're considering is the weight of the fluid that got displaced by the blimp. Oh, okay. And that's air. And essentially that displaced fluid is trying to push down and fill the space by lifting the balloon out. And so we have to use the density of the whatever fluid is surrounding our object. Okay, here's another example of something floating. It's called a hydrometer. Um, actually, I think it's called a hygrometer. I think a hydrometer measures, uh, measures humidity. Does anybody know? I'll, I'll check. I think that's a typo. I think it's a hygrometer. Um, it's a little enclosed capsule that you put into usually a liquid and use it to measure how dense the fluid is. Okay, so if this is a closed capsule and this is a very, very dense fluid, um, what would you expect this device to do? Would it sink down or float high up? Or let me put it this way. Let's say this is how the device floats when it's in a glass of water. If you replace the water with something that was more dense, what do you think would change in this equilibrium position. Yeah. 
Or to put it another way, if you go floating, if you go swimming on the Great Salt Lake or the Dead Sea or any other body of water that has a lot of salt in it that's much more dense than fresh water, do you float higher up or further down? Higher up. The same thing here. This is a more dense fluid. This will float higher up. It's a less dense fluid. It will float further down. And this is designed with a scale on the side. And this scale can be calibrated so that you just read off the density of the fluid it's floating in. OK, so one of my professors, when I was a graduate student, was Russian. And he uh, told the story of going to bars in Russia and a trick that he would do. He would bring one of these. And he would order a vodka. And they'd bring it, put this into it, and make sure that they could see him do that. He'd drink the vodka. He'd order several more drinks, some food. And then when it was time to leave, he'd ask how much it would cost. And they always gave it to him for free, his order. Any thoughts on why? Well, yeah, so they thought he was a government inspector testing whether the fluid was watered down. So vodka can easily be watered down without fooling people. Um, but one way you could test is by measuring the, the density. Right? If you add water to it, you're going to change its density. OK, so let's do that as an example. The density of vodka is 0.89 kilograms per meter cubed. The hygrometer floats in water with the water level marked at a certain line. But in a glass of vodka, the liquid comes up to 104% of the way up that line. How watered down is the vodka? Okay, so if that scale, you know, were measured in 100, you know, in increments where 100 was where it floats when it's in water, and it's reading 104 when it's in the what's supposed to be vodka, is it really vodka? Okay, so let's see. Let's draw our hygrometer floating in some fluid. This is a case where it's floating, but it's not completely immersed. So unlike the blimp, only this portion is displacing fluid. Okay, And the further down it floats, the more fluid it displaces. Okay, So there's some. height here. And really, this is usually cylindrical like that, such that the height is proportional to the volume that's displaced. OK, so there's going to be a buoyant force acting up. There's going to be the weight of the hygrometer. Call it the weight acting down, and that's it. Those are the forces that act on that. The buoyant force is the density of the displaced fluid times the volume submersed, or the volume displaced, either way you want to say it, times g. The weight is going to be the mass times g. And setting these things equal to each other, because I know that the sum of the forces in the y direction has to equal 0 when this is in equilibrium. So I have 
the density of the fluid times the volume submersed times g is the buoyant force pointing up, mg points down, that has to equal zero. That tells me the density of the fluid is, well, the g's cancel out. The mass of the hygrometer divided by the volume it's submersed. So I can get a relationship between the density and the reading on the scale. So the reading, this value h, the reading on the scale is going to equal, is going to be proportional to the volume submersed. The volume submersed is going to be, we'll call it h times a. So if a is the cross-sectional area, then I can write this as m over ha. So I have a relationship that's completely general. Now I have to plug in values for a couple different fluids and see how uh, that relationship tells me the hygrometer should behave. Sam? The volume, the volume submersed. So H is the height that's submersed or the, the depth that the bottom is submersed to. It's the length of the tube that's under the fluid. And A is the cross-sectional area of this cylinder. So it's, I, I write it that way because h is what you, physically you're measuring a height on a linear scale. No, the formula for a cylinder. Cross-sectional area A, height h. So it just comes from geometry. No, nothing uh, specific to physics or this problem necessarily. Um, so let's start with water and pure vodka and see what readings we should have for water and pure vodka. We know for water, um, the density of the fluid is 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed and that the height is, we'll call it 100, 100%. We'll measure the height in percentage. Okay, so. I could write this as HA, or I could write it as uh, this percent submersed relative to water, relative to some, some volume submersed in water. I'm going to write 100% as 1. Now for vodka, I know that the fluid has a density of 0.89 kilograms. That really should be 890 kilograms per meter cubed. It's the density of vodka, not 
mass of the hygrometer has not changed. One hundred and four percent. The uh, amount of volume submersed is one hundred and four percent that of what was submersed when we used water. And so what this tells me is I can solve either of these expressions for M over VH2O is 1,000 kilograms per meter cubed. And now if I have some unknown mixture where the density of my mixture is equal to combination of the density of the vodka and the density of water. So if x is the fraction of vodka in my fluid, if x is 100% or if x is 1, the density of the mixture should be that of vodka. If x is 0, there's no fluid that's vodka, it's all water then the density should be that of water. I'm just saying the density of the mixture is a linear combination of that of vodka and water. I'm calling the fraction that's vodka x. So it's the volume fraction of vodka. So what I know is that when I have my mixture, Its density should be mass over sorry. Mass over uh, the percent submersed. times VH2O. Mass over VH2O I know. And I guess I now plug in this value. We had 104% of the object submersed when it was in this mix. So I before I mistakenly attributed that to the amount submersed when it was in vodka. So I'm going to plug in 1.04. And that's going to equal roughly um, Nine hundred and sixty kilograms per meter cube. So I know.
know the density of my mixture. I know the density of water, and I know the density of vodka, so I can solve for x, the fraction of vodka that's in the fluid. So I have um, 960 kilograms per meter cube is equal to x times the density of vodka, 890 kilograms per meter cube, plus 1 minus x times 1,000 kilograms per meter cube. So the units are going to cancel. 960 equals 890 plus 1,000. Uh, I'm sorry. 890x minus 1,000x plus 1,000. So I will subtract 1,000 from both sides. Minus 40 equals minus 110x, or x equals 4 elevenths, which is what about 0 0.37. So this drink that's supposed to be pure vodka is only 37% vodka. That's what that says. You can measure it using this device. Okay, so in summary, a lot of the uh, machinery we have for describing how objects behave, solid objects, can be applied to fluids, but we need to consider not the mass or the force, but the uh, mass per unit volume and the force per unit area, so the density and the pressure in the fluid. Um, we'll see next time that if we treat pressure as the energy per unit volume, we can do some really useful things using conservation of energy to understand how fluid behaves when it's moving. Today we only dealt with fluid that was stationary, and so we had Pascal's law that told us the pressure varied, increased as you got deeper into a fluid, and we had this concept of buoyancy, which is the weight of the displaced fluid causes an upward uh, force exerted on an object in the fluid. Okay, I will see you on Wednesday.